The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Horror has a face. And you must make a friend of horror. Horror and moral terror are your friends. If they are not, then they are enemies to be feared. If Brando's Colonel Kurtz is correct and horror has a face, that face probably looks like the xenomorph that bursts out of John Hurt's writhing body in Alien. The chest-bursting xenomorph and Brando's Colonel Kurtz from Coppola's Apocalypse Now arrived in theaters in the summer of 1979. And this week on the show, we celebrate the 40th anniversary of that movie year with our top five films of 79. We'll also revisit our 2016 Sacred Cow review of Ridley Scott's horror masterpiece. It's all ahead... The horror. The horror. On Film Spotted. Welcome to Film Spotting. 40 years ago, Josh, 1979, the number one movie at the box office was not Alien, not Apocalypse Now. It was. Well, let's see if you can get it. A couple clues here. It was also the winner of the 1980 Best Picture Oscar. No superheroes, just the superhuman acting prowess of Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman. I only know this because in doing my research, it was one of my regrets. I hadn't Mm. seen it as a five-year-old in 1979, and I didn't have time to catch up with Kramer versus Kramer. Okay, well. It might just get a mention as we get into our top five here in a bit. It made a quaint $100 million at the box office. That's cute. The divorce drama, not bad for such a film. And I did a little math and I probably did it wrong today. But $100 million in 1979 is something like $300 million now. So kind of astonishing that that movie could do yeah, that well. That is impressive then. It was followed by the Amityville Horror, Rocky II, Star Trek the movie, then Alien and Apocalypse Now. And rounding out the top 10, the Muppet movie, The Jerk, Moonraker, and Blake Edwards 10, starring Dudley Moore and Bo Derek and that famous swimsuit. Boy, I loved Moonraker. I'm sure I didn't see it when I was five. It was probably a few years later, but really thought that was great. Not going to make my list. Yeah, Moonraker... Also not really going to make my list of regrets, despite the fact that I haven't seen it. No, you're okay. Okay. This week, we'll see which, if any of those titles, other than Moonraker, make our top five films of 1979. And we will revisit our 2016 Sacred Cow review of Alien. If you have already heard that discussion, we will have some listener feedback that we have never before shared that will be part of that conversation this week. But first, we're going to ease our way 
into 1979 with the results of the poll question we asked a couple weeks back. We were, of course, anticipating this show, and we asked you simply, what is the best film of 79? Your choices were either Alien or Apocalypse Now, or you could write in other, any one of the other hundred at least movies that were released in 1979 could also be your pick. Josh, how did it come out? So other, no surprise, last place, 13% of the vote. Among the two real contenders, Alien won this, got 47% of the vote, 40% for Apocalypse Now. So we discussed this a little bit in a recent show that Alien was trending to be the winner, although it was close and it was a close finish, as you said, 47 to 40%. Are you surprised that Alien won? I was, Sam was, but you at the time seemed to think Alien was maybe the more highly regarded of the two films now. I mean, I don't know, highly regarded or just more recently thought of. I mean, with uh, the Alien films being rebooted in a sense by Scott and just more in the public consciousness that might have pushed it over. I mean, if you missed Apocalypse Now 2, Electric Boogaloo. I did. And I was going to make that joke. And then in my head, I did make the joke. But I was thinking, of course, there was the Apocalypse Now redo. Yes, redo. Might count as something, but that Heart was a of while darkness back. as well. Sure. The, of filmmakers' apocalypse. I mean, yeah, apocalypse now has not disappeared in the public consciousness by any means, but hasn't lived exactly the same. Hasn't become a franchise. Let's yeah, that's say. true. Probably a lot of people, in light of Prometheus and Alien Covenant, going back and either experiencing the first Alien or re-experiencing it. The most popular other answers. There were three that were up near the top, and. They happen to be my number two, number three, and number six choices. So I'm not going to mention them quite yet. Here are a few other listener picks that I don't think are going to come up over the course of our top five. We start with Brent. I don't know if Breaking Away is the best film of 1979, but it's certainly my favorite. A quintessential coming-of-age film that also works as an underdog sports movie. The male friendships are nuanced and believable, with early standout performances from Jackie Earl Haley and Dennis Quaid. Also, good cycling movies are hard to come by, and this is one of the best. Andrew from Miami says, I turned 12 in 1979, so my thoughts on 79 are informed by looking back as an adult along with my memories as a kid. I love Alien and Apocalypse Now, but I could not properly appreciate their greatness until years later. In the end, I voted Other and The Jerk. It is an underrated classic and so much smarter than it gets credit for being. Every year, for years, I would celebrate the new phone book being delivered to my doorstep the same way he does in the movie. I'm somebody. My parents used to do that all the time. So The Jerk and that scene in particular have a soft spot in my heart. So Andrew doing what we sometimes do with these lists, the ones more in the 80s, I think. We make a list of what would have been our top five in 1980-whatever. Yeah. Makes sense for Andrew to do that, being for a little sure. bit older. We also heard from Derek, the great Santini has always held a place in my heart. I was probably in my early teens when I saw it, and the performance by Robert Duvall blew my tiny mind. A powerful piece of work. Thank you, Derek, and to everyone, of course, who shared a comment this week and participated in our poll. The top two vote-getters in that poll question, Alien and Apocalypse Now, are the only two movies, Josh, that made both of our lists. So as we look at our top fives, where did Alien land for you? 
I have Alien at number four. So okay. on the list, not quite at the top there. I voted for other for reasons I'll get to a little bit later. But let me start real quickly here with Sarah Welch Larson's take on the film. A listener who's also a critic, and she wrote a Brightwall Dark Room essay a while back. This is actually, the essay is on Alien 3, but in it she describes the first Alien this way, as cold, analytical horror, slow moving at first until all hell breaks loose. And I think that's exactly right. It's what I always appreciated about the movie. And it's right there from the start, how that title forms ever so slowly Mm -hmm. on the screen, each letter taking its time to be revealed. We get into that in our Sacred Cow review. We also get into the creature design, the fully realized characters, Sigourney Weaver's action heroine, and all sorts of other good stuff. So right now, I'll just say, you know, this could be a horror masterpiece. It could be a sci-fi masterpiece. Maybe it's both at once. Whatever. It is really great. It's on my list at number four. Mm. Yeah, it's number five for me. And after I formed my list, I went to Letterboxd and did a search for the highest rated movies of just this year, 79. Alien was number one. So there you go. Really wouldn't have been a surprise had I known that, that it emerged as the winner in our poll question. We will have a lot more Alien talk coming here in a little bit. Apocalypse Now, where did it finish for you? A little bit higher. It's number two. I would have voted for this if I hadn't gone other in the poll. I do like it a little bit more than Alien for what it's worth. Both are four out of four stars on my website. Both are genre movies in a way that uh, transcend the tropes and the concerns of their respective genres, I think. This is possibly the definitive Vietnam War movie. And I know it depends on what you're what you want out of a movie like that. Uh, at the same time, it's bigger than a Vietnam War movie. You know, it uses that conflict to offer this mythical exploration of good and evil, the heart of darkness, which of course is the title of the Joseph Conrad story that inspired the film. I'm going to lean a little bit. Uh, speaking of my star ratings, I had five films from '79 that I've given four out of four stars to. So that means I've talked about some of these titles before on the show in different ways. So mm-hmm. I don't want to repeat myself. Bring some freshness to these lists. I'm going to bring in a few respected critics, too, to offer what they said about these films. And this is Manola Dargis on Apocalypse Now. She's writing for the LA Weekly here. I think this is in 2001, at the time of Apocalypse Now redo. She said, to look at Apocalypse Now is to realize that most of us are fast forgetting what a movie looks like. A real movie, the last movie, an American masterpiece. Hmm. So the more things change, the more they stay the same, I guess. That phrase, critics pull that out every once in a while, right? The last movie, when they want to describe a film of potent impact and lasting power, Apocalypse Now is certainly one of those. I think that's that's a fitting – you can only call one movie that, so it doesn't mm-hmm. really make sense to use it, but somehow it still fits for Apocalypse Now. We heard from Chris Massa Minute Massa in Pittsburgh. He said, Alien is probably about as close as we're going to come to a flawless movie. Every shot, every moment is perfect. Apocalypse Now, on the other hand, feels messy and undisciplined, and I think it's all the better for it. In fact, it's this very messiness that keeps me coming back to it again and again, trying to unravel more of its mysteries. Whether or not it's actually the better movie or the best of 79, Apocalypse Now gets my vote. And To your point about how many good movies, really good movies, came out in 1979, my top three are probably three of my top 50 movies. I mention that sometimes. I have never actually done that process. But if you just gave me an hour and said, throw down on paper the first 50 titles that come into your head, the 50 movies you think you love the most, 
three of them are on this list. And I was thinking about it, and perhaps this is the problem, if you in fact view it as a problem. They're all three formative movies. They're movies I saw at a key time in my life as I was discovering film and really made me love cinema. So I definitely still have that soft spot for them and that regard for them. Apocalypse Now is actually my number one. It's the best film of 79 for me, and I won't get into it too much, but one of the interesting connections I would actually have some fun making had I more time and energy is to connect the heroes of Apocalypse Now, and I'll go here with the triumvirate of not only Captain Willard, but Colonel Kurtz and Francis Ford Coppola, who as a presence looms over that film just as much as those other two characters do, connect them to the artists in terms of both subject matter and the filmmakers who are at the core of my four through two picks. That might make a little more sense as we get into those choices. So your number one, my number two. Yep. Not a bad showing for Apocalypse Now. No, and Apocalypse Now, number two, right behind Alien in Letterbox ranking as well. So let's see now where we diverge. We have not heard your number five film of 79. All right, I'll start back at the top, and I'm going with the Muppet movie here. Now, everyone loves the Muppets, of course, but I'm not alone in loving them this much. Listener Andrew L., he voted other and named the Muppet movie in our Best of 79 poll. He also left this comment. While Alien and Apocalypse Now are considered iconic for good reason, I think there's only one movie from 1979 that truly stands above the rest, the Muppet movie. You wouldn't believe a banjo-strumming frog puppet would make grown adults tear up in a movie theater, even today. But any Anything is possible when Jim Henson is involved. Henson knew how to make puppets come to life and brought so much humor and heart to every minute of his films. The songs are great. The story is simple, yet so earnest. There's a good reason why these lovable characters have stuck around for 40 years, and this movie has everything to do with it. Yes, Andrew, the Muppet movie is timeless, partly, I think, because it was ahead of its time. I mean, there were meta films before this, of course, but you could argue that the late 20th century self-deconstruction of showbiz really began here. I mean, it began with the TV show, of course, but it was given the pitch-perfect big screen treatment with their first Muppet film. I mean, remember that the Muppet movie, this is their big screen debut, and it opens with a raucous premiere screening of itself, where the Muppets gather to watch the picture that they're in. I'm Stetler. I'm Waldorf. We're here to heckle a Muppet movie. Gentlemen, that's straight ahead. Private screening room D. Private screening? Yeah, they're afraid to show it in public. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh look at this place. Yeah. What a dump. Bunch of weirdos around here. Look at them. It's that sort of self-referentiality, as well as the really fast pace, that should make them still appeal to kids. In our YouTube age, they're very memeable. I mean, these the skits and the little bits that they give us, very memeable. So parents, if you haven't already, please introduce your children to the Muppets. Now, normally I'm suspicious of the sort of Hollywood navel-gazing that meta-movies often engage in. Maybe, maybe we'll touch on this if all that jazz comes up. We'll see what happens. <laughs> oh, man. But I'm already cutting of, the mic. <laughs> the sort of silliness that is the Muppet's true calling card, I think that helps keeps any pretentiousness at bay, which you know can be the fatal mistake of meta-movies. Now, another Muppet movie fan, along with me and Andrew, Roger Ebert, he gave the Muppet movie three and a half out of four stars when it came out, and his review rightly recognizes the lo-fi craft that makes the Muppets so special. Here's Ebert. Jolson sang, Barrymore spoke, Garbo laughed, and now Kermit the Frog rides a bicycle. 
The Muppet movie not only stars the Muppets, but for the first time shows us their feet. And if you can figure out how they were able to show Kermit pedaling across the screen, then you are less a romantic than I am. I prefer to believe he did it himself. (laughs) Classic Ebert there. I see no problem putting Kermit in that company that Ebert does. So The Muppet Movie, my number five film of 79. Yeah. Again, a testament to how good 1979 as a cinematic year is. I have The Muppet Movie at number 13 on my list. But I love it. And you're right as far as if there are parents out there who haven't shown it to their kids. I don't remember when it was, but it was in the past three or four years, I watched it with the entire family and we all ate it up. Great. It still holds yeah. up. Completely. And I know there's there's been a revival with, I think it was 2011, right? We got the Muppet movie in a it sequel might have been since because of then. That. So, so yeah, certainly kids are probably still aware of them. But if there's a kid out there who doesn't know the Muppets, you got you to gotta show them to them. So for my number four, since we already heard my number five pick, Alien, we got this poll comment from Malcolm Cook, who wrote in, as we know, Artists reflecting upon life through their art is pretty much Kempinar catnip. Surely this, Christoph Kislovsky's camera buff, has to be up for consideration. And yes, Malcolm, of course, is correct. In fact, I'm so predictable, that theme is pretty much going to be the theme for my next three choices. You're going to get that reflection framed in similar but ultimately very different ways. And here in camera buff... Art is presented as instigator. For better or worse, it's a tool for discovery and, in some ways, positively a tool for self-discovery. It is a movie that takes place in Poland. You have Jerzy Stur playing a factory worker, and he's now a new father, and he gets an 8mm camera. And basically, his plan is just to document the life of his young child. But when the Communist Party discovers that he has a camera and he works at a plant where they've got a celebration coming up. They say, well, why don't you put this to use and you could become our filmmaker. You could chronicle and celebrate this plant and the workers in this film. Whenever this movie comes up, and it's only been once or twice on this show, this movie was a film spotting marathon discovery. I've referred to it before, but if we ever do a list of top five marathon movies, this would definitely be in the running for me. But the scene I always point to, because it's my favorite in the film, is one pretty late in the movie, and this obsession with the camera and his newly discovered passion for his art is really straining his relationship with his wife and they're having a fight and she's yelling at him and walks out of the room and she turns around and just manages to catch him with his hands up in the shape of a frame (laughs) he's imagining in that moment what it would be like what this fight would be like if he was filming it and it's actually a really wonderful comedic moment because there are these big questions being thrown out with this film about the responsibility of the artist personally and professionally whether or not truth is something the camera captures or something the artist interprets using the camera but it does have that humor to it and i think part of it is Kislovsky having some fun with himself. I can only speculate about how autobiographical this film might be, but he does seem to recognize the pretentiousness potentially of the artist and the need to be a little bit self-deprecating. I appreciate about this movie too that it's not, of course, a biopic about a great artist. Someone 
everyone knows is a great artist who has achieved something and exploring those questions. It's the story of an everyday working class man who just gets in over his head. It's about the ramifications of his obsession. And like a lot of studios, you can find some great parallels here. The party and his bosses at the plant ultimately don't really agree with some of his artistic choices. It's not good for business, so to speak. I know Kislovsky is rightfully a revered filmmaker, and you've got the whole Three Colors trilogy to reckon with, and you should if you haven't. The Double Life of Veronique is a masterpiece. The Decalogue, which I've only reckoned with a few of those films, many of those are masterpieces, but Camera Buff is my favorite of all the ones I've seen. And yeah, maybe that's a little bit predictable because of its subject matter, but I'm all in on it. And that is high praise to rank it among his, his films like that. I'm going to have to admit, this is on my regret list. I've seen a lot of Kislovsky, wrote at length about the Decalogue, but this one I still need to catch up with. So I am ashamed. All right, we're moving up to my number three. Yes. I think we've covered my five and my four. So at number three, I have The Black Stallion. And this is going to be a familiar title to listeners. I think when we did my top five horse scenes, it was my number one. When we did top five children's book adaptations, it was my number three. This is one I have loved since I was a child. Did revisit it recently because I spend a good time on it in my book as a prayer of obedience. And so it's fresh in the mind, absolutely still holds up. The story follows a young boy played by Kelly Reno, who's shipwrecked off the coast of North Africa along with a wild horse. They manage to survive together, only to have their bond threatened back in the civilized world until an aging jockey played by Mickey Rooney takes them under his wing. That second half with Rooney is strong, but the masterful stuff is really at the beginning. Yeah. This is where you get Caleb Deschanel's cinematography in those island sequences. That's where my number one horse scene actually came from. And this gives us just some of the all-time searing cinematic images. It's it's like you know the, those Oscar montages that, that you see. There's usually something from the Black Stallion when you talk about cinematography for good reason. I love how this movie also completely respects kids' patience and intelligence. It's kind of on the other end of the spectrum from the Muppet movie in terms of rhythm and pace, yet it still manages to speak directly to them. You know, it's an almost primeval evocation of of childhood fears and childhood desires. And in fact, this is what Pauline Kale touched on when she wrote about it for The New Yorker in 79. Kale said, when I saw The Black Stallion on a Saturday afternoon, there was proof that even children who have grown up with television and may never have been exposed to a good movie can respond to the real thing when they see it. It was a hushed, attentive audience with no running up and down the aisles and no traffic to the popcorn counter. And even when the closing credits came on, the children sat quietly looking at the images behind the names. There may be a separate God for the movies at that. Now, Kale was no softy, so this isn't just sentiment talking. The Black Stallion is really one of the greats. It's my number three. You're a thief. You're a big, fat thief. Nobody's a thief. You are. I said nobody's a thief. Who do you think you're calling a thief? This is my place. And I'm thinking that that's my horse. No, he's mine. Hold on, son. Now, wait a minute. You hold on there. What are you going to do here, buddy? What are you going to do? Maybe is yours. 
So this is the point in the show, Josh, where I tell you that I finally caught up with one of your beloved films and really, really liked it. Okay. And then you're going to reciprocate that favor here in a few moments. Okay. I can't wait I'll for that to I'll prepare myself. Now, if I had to pick a favorite horse scene from The Black Stallion, yeah. having literally just watched it. Nice. I would probably go actually with a shot. The one that lingers with me the most, and there are many to choose from, but the one that lingers with me is when the horse has escaped from the backyard and is running down the street and then yeah. ends up way out in kind of the rural part of town. And we get this glorious long shot that just stays motionless on the horse as it starts in the left side of the frame and goes all the way through to the right. And you have Black just running as fast as it can, that majestic gallop, but against, in the background, this industrial setting, a factory of some kind. But then more in the foreground, it's a field. And you just get this perfect dichotomy of the, the grandeur of nature, the grandeur of this horse, but against that more modern setting where the horse doesn't really fit. And there's something kind of sad about it, that it's running against that backdrop at the same time because it's such a majestic horse, it isn't really sad at all. Yeah, and it's it's a great callback because you get similar shots in those island scenes, but here, uh, bringing that to mind in this entirely new context. Yeah, there's wonderful stuff in that second half. Don't mean to downplay that at all. And we should probably mention, you know, how, working alongside Deschanel is director Carol Ballard here. So, so glad you saw it. So glad you liked it. I do want to ask you about the ending of the film, which surprised me a little bit insofar as I really expected, and maybe this is just the cynic in me, and you're going to hear a little bit more about that cynical side in a second, but I really thought that once that notion, well, really, once it's introduced from the very beginning of the film, going back to what we were just saying about that shot, this idea of this wild stallion now being inserted into modern life, into a place that it doesn't really belong, and you have a key scene where an older man tells the young boy, Alec, I really think this is where you should back away. You can't try to tame this horse. And I was expecting then, honestly, that the movie would kind of play out along those lines and suggest that we're all going to learn a lesson from this about trying to tame this horse. And in fact, it doesn't do that at all. Spoiler alert. It's a movie that completely indulges the boyhood fantasy. It says everything Alec wants yeah. is what Alec gets. That is true. But I think there's also – one of the interesting things and why I, I wrote about in terms of obedience is because it's very much about the relationship between these two and the oscillating back and forth between what the boy wants, mm -hmm. what the horse is capable of, when getting what the boy wants involves exploitation or what adults want from the horse. I mean it's fairly clear what the adults want are purely exploitation. The adults at the beginning of the movie, mm -hmm. I mean, his original owners. So I think, yes, you could read the ending that way. Maybe it would have been more interesting if, if it had been more of the black's choice in some way or even if he had lost – perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, that might have made things more complicated, but I still don't see it as a cop out. Okay. Fair enough. I did really enjoy The Black Stallion. My number three film of 79 is Woody Allen's Manhattan. And I thought our friends at the great Next Picture Show podcast did a really good job with this. In their recent discussion, they had a pairing of films that was twisty mysteries and they connected 
Under the Silver Lake, the new movie from David Robert Mitchell and all its turns and conspiracies to Roman Polanski's Chinatown. So I want to similarly acknowledge I understand the prevailing distaste for Woody Allen due to assault allegations made against him. And of course, going back even to his relationship with Sunni Previn. And I feel comfortable sort of diving into this a little bit, Josh, because we haven't really done it here on the show. We haven't gotten into this issue. And I'm generally a separate art from the artist guy. And if that cliche bores you or bothers you, I'll paraphrase from an article I read last year over at Vox.com that was called, What Do We Do When the Art We Love Was Created by a Monster? And the writer was reckoning with the fact that she used to love Edward Scissorhands and then in light of allegations made against Johnny Depp, can she still feel that way about the film? And so she reached out to three literary critics to kind of go to the history of this conversation and try to tie it into this current issue. And a couple of them felt this way. I'm going to paraphrase them, that engaging critically with a work of art isn't the same as endorsing the morality of the artist. I'll add to that that enjoying a work of art isn't the same as endorsing the morality of the artist. And going a little bit further even, and yes, this might even be a little bit more cynical, but one of the artists who's quoted in the piece, her name's Claire Hayes Brady. She's at the University of College in Dublin. She had a really interesting line. She said, for me, it's a false dichotomy because this question presupposes we should want our artists to be virtuous and that we should expect morality and ethical behavior from artists. I don't understand why we expect that or why we should expect that. And frankly, I've kind of always started from the position that every artist I love could be a terrible person. I think it's honestly more likely that that's the case than the alternative. But with Chinatown, Genevieve and Scott and Tasha on that show touched on a few points, noting that one way to approach the discussion is to recognize that to not engage with Chinatown because of Polanski gives too much weight to Polanski as the sole author. What about Robert Town as the screenwriter, right? What about the actors, Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway, Jerry Goldsmith's score, Richard Silbert in the production design, Sam Osteen, the editor. Now, I could apply that to Manhattan, but it's trickier. Mm-hmm. Scott said it on the show. It's more difficult to extricate Allen from Manhattan for a variety of reasons, including he wrote and directed the film and is one of the movie's stars. They also noted the question of how much we conflate one's deed or alleged deed with the work itself. It's not impossible to conflate what Polanski did and what happens in Chinatown, but it's tough. It's tougher than it is to conflate the allegations against Allen and Manhattan. And maybe the best way for me to frame it is to think about it in terms of my first trip to the Comedy Cellar, April 2017. You know where I'm going with this. I might have mentioned it on the show, but if I did, it was just in passing or maybe even in hot mics at the very end. But you had gone one summer, I think just the summer before with your wife, Debbie, and you had the magical cellar experience where you go in and then who shows up? Chris Rock, mm-hmm. Tracy Morgan, those things that don't happen every night at the comedy cellar, but can happen when these stars walk in. And I go for the first time. It's like a Monday night, firmly expecting nothing to happen. I'm definitely not going to have the Josh experience. I'm with a friend of mine. We sit down. First comedian's really good. The MC goes back up and says, well, this is one of those things that just happens sometimes at the Comedy Cellar, ladies and gentlemen, Louis C.K. And Louis C.K. walks up, who at that time, I think most people would say, hands down, was the best comic in the world. And I was certainly a fan. That's who I wanted to see there ahead of rock. There you go. (laughs) I was certainly a fan (laughs) of his work. And he got up and said, I'm hosting SNL 
in a week or whatever. So I'm basically working on my material. And he did 20, 25 minutes. And it was glorious. There's a good chance I'm never going to pay money again. A really good chance I'm never going to pay money again or go out of my way to watch anything that Louis C.K. does. But it doesn't change that night. Not really. It doesn't change the thrill that was that night. It doesn't change how much I laughed. And for me, it's the same with Manhattan. My relationship to the movie on a revisit or future revisits, I'll admit, maybe it will change. But for now, the space it occupies in my memory is what was established in my first eight to 10 viewings of that movie. All my favorite lines, all my favorite shots. And there are many. It's a little bit ironic. There are so many contradictions you have to wrestle with when you consider Manhattan now. And the movie is all about contradictions, reconciling the heart and the mind, the fantasy version of New York with the real New York, the fantasy version of a relationship with the reality of relationships. And here, the way art is reflected in the film, here it's art as salvation. Think about the memorable penultimate scene in Manhattan where Woody Allen's character is forcing himself to think about the things that life is really worth living for. And the list is dominated by great art and artists. Uh, ooh, I would say, what, Groucho Marx, to, to name one thing, uh, um, and Willie Mays, and um, the second movement of the Jupiter Symphony, and um, Louis Armstrong, recording of Potato Head Blues, um, Swedish movies, naturally, Sentimental Education by Flaubert, uh, Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra, um, those incredible apples and pears by Cezanne, uh, The Crabs at Sam Woe's, um, Tracy's Face, <laughs> So in some ways, that whole monologue is revelatory and kind of inspiring and touching. And it's also a little bit sad that only after listing all those composers and directors and writers does the character land on something that's actually tangible and real. And if none of that moves you to see the film, I could suggest you watch it just to see Gordon Willis's black and white cinematography. Yeah, that's that's a highlight. Who oh boy. OK, you opened a can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> Had to do it. And, and yeah, I mean, you did. If you're going to talk about Manhattan, we got to discuss this. And, uh, you know, I, I won't go in length. I was actually at the conference on World Affairs where I did Ebert interrupt as I was on a panel. That was all about separating the art from the artist. I think it was live streamed, so it might be online. I'll look for a link. And if there is one, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, but basically, I'm mostly in agreement with you on your approach on this. I think we should strive for that separation, but I also think that each piece of art and mm -hmm. artist should be considered differently. Um, so it's not uh, a philosophy that can just be applied and we're done with it and we don't have to worry about it, okay? So uh, to explain, yes, Chinatown is fairly easy for me, largely because of that notion of all the other people involved, but also because what Chinatown is exploring is somewhat somewhat separate. It's further removed mm -hmm. from what troubles us about Polanski, as you intimated, than yes. what is going on in Manhattan and what troubles us about Allen. Now, Louis C.K., I'll just say that this is why this is so tricky. I probably would. We talked a lot about Louis C.K. on that panel. I probably would go see him again only because I consider 
confession to always have been an element of his comedy. I think he pulled one over on us in that he wasn't really confessing everything when he pretended to be, but I still think this is someone working that out in their art. The other question here is stand-up is a very different art form than than the Mm -hmm. movies, okay? So enough of that for now. Alan, so what's always troubled me about Alan, even before – just. The whole thing, the running thing in so many of his films about younger women struck me as icky about Alan long before I saw Manhattan. Saw Manhattan, it's one of my four out of four star movies from 1979. It's number six on my list. So how is that possible? Hmm. Let me point to one scene in Manhattan that doesn't solve anything, but it's at least how I got there because all the things you talk about that are good about Manhattan are very good from the cinematography on down. Mm -hmm. But there's a scene in there, and at this point, um, Alan's character is listening to his friends read out loud this really mortifying passage of a book that his ex-wife, played by Meryl Streep, has written about their marriage. And there's a phrase in there where she describes him – she describes his male chauvinism, self-righteous misanthropy, and nihilistic moods of despair. Now, these are terms that all were thrown at Alan and his films years later after Manhattan. So here he is in 79 confessing to these things on screen that these are issues of, okay, Isaacs, but yes, really Mm -hmm. his. This is where we're back to how it's a very personal piece of art. Something really remarkable happens in that scene. Alan shuts the hell up. And that is rare. (laughs) As you know, if you've seen any of the movies he starred in, his friends have been reading this book as they're walking along this pier, and he kind of falls behind them. Um, The camera stops with him and just holds, and he pauses there. He looks down, gives a moment, gives a beat, and then kind of shuffles on. There's no self-deprecating defense made. There's no forced jokes, which is where he does turn to in his really bad films and tries to tries to laugh this sort of stuff up. He is on some level reckoning with it. Yeah. There's a moment of true introspection. I don't think all of his films that bother me in this way have that. It's maybe one of Alan's finest moments as an actor, which is ironic because he's not speaking. There's no verbal dexterity going on here. And it's one of the things that I think makes Manhattan special, even as, Hmm. obviously, there are good reasons to have issues with Alan as a person. Listen, he was given to fits of rage, Jewish liberal paranoia, male chauvinism, self-righteous misanthropy, and nihilistic moods of despair. He had complaints about life, but never any solutions. He longed to be an artist, but balked at the necessary sacrifices. In his most private moments, he spoke of his fear of death, which he elevated to tragic heights when, in fact, it was mere narcissism. Okay, that brings me from my number six film of 1979, Manhattan, all the way to my number one. And this is Stalker. How do you talk about Stalker? It's about as difficult as talking about Manhattan for completely different reasons. This is Andrei Tarkovsky's sci-fi head-scratcher. It's about this mysterious zone that's been walled off by the government where inside it, the laws of nature don't apply. And at the heart of this zone is supposed to be a room where if you enter it, all of your wishes are granted. So the movie follows this expedition that's led by a figure known as the Stalker, played by Alexander Kaidanovsky. He's hired by a writer and a professor to sneak them into the zone and guide them towards this room. Now, obviously, if you haven't seen this, another movie may be coming to mind, Alex Garland's Annihilation from last year. It must have been influenced by Stalker. And while I appreciated that film, I found it frustrating. 
Stalker is equally enigmatic. So what's going on here? Why do I think this is the best film of 1979? For me, at least, Tarkovsky has this way of making the ineffable make sense in your soul, even if it doesn't in your head. The imagery holds meaning you can't explain, but more importantly, you don't feel the need to. I guess I just always felt the need, that need in Annihilation. What's an example of what I'm talking about? Thankfully, Stalker is playing on Criterion Channel right now. So I had a chance to revisit a bit of it. And I came across this moment where the men enter a chamber filled with strange mounds of sand, it looks like. And there's a startling instant where a bird flies from behind the camera forward into the frame and disappears midair in this edit, then reappears bizarrely from behind the camera again and does this pounce of a landing on one of the piles of sand, sending up a cloud of dust. Just in an instant, I have no idea what that means, Hmm. but ideas of time, reality, freedom, all of this suddenly comes into play. It's not explained, but it comes into play. There's a great video essay on the YouTube channel Cinema Cartography that describes Tarkovsky's work as cinematic streams of consciousness. And later in the voiceover, it says his films don't come with prepackaged deductions. In there lies a truth, but one that must remain unknown to audience and artist alike. So it's not about what something like Stalker means. It's not about what these three characters are looking for in the zone. It's how they experience the mystery of that journey. And then it becomes about what you're looking for as a viewer and how you experience the mystery. So you can kind of say Stalker the movie is our stalker in a way. It's our guide into the mystery. Now, I haven't even gotten into the formal brilliance of Stalker, so let me share this from listener Michael Green, who left a comment. He voted for Stalker in our Best of 79 poll in the other category. It has to be Tarkovsky's Stalker. Awesome premise, exquisite camera work and lighting, and the sound design is tremendous. I can still hear the heaviness of footsteps months later. I can hear that years later, Michael. So I am with you over Apocalypse Now and Alien Stalker, my number one film of 1979. I know I'm going to so disappoint a bunch of listeners when I say this, but it is my number one regret that I didn't catch up with for this list. It's probably my number one regret period. If I could rectify any blind spot with snapping my fingers, and I kind of wish I could snap my fingers because it's two hours and 43 minutes long. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a stalker. long one. It is. I know I need to see it. I knew it was going to be high on your list. If not number one, it just could not happen this week. But I promise I will get to it. You watched The Black Stallion. You're good. I did. I and forgive you. I was kind of hoping you wouldn't bring that up again and listeners would be reminded that I had a chance to watch one movie and I chose Carol Ballard. Great, oh, you're, great you're film. Fine. But yeah. chose Ballard over Tarkovsky. That's all right. I wanted to just move right past that, Josh. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. My number two film then of 79, as we know, my number one, it's Apocalypse Now. We have Wade McCormick doing the honors. The best film for him of 79 is the best movie musical of all time, Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. Of course, you could, Josh, transfer a lot of the same art versus the artist talk that we just engaged in to this choice as well. There's a scene, in fact, in Fosse Verdon, the TV show that's on FX right now, where we see Fosse, I think they're working on Pippin, and he asks this one blonde dancer if he can walk her home. And she says, of course, He's the director, he's Bob Fosse, and they are walking home and he's telling her all about the role she's going to have in this play, how he's envisioning this great moment at the end, and she's just going to have this tremendous part. 
And then, of course, he comes on to her, and he comes on really hard. He comes on hard because usually this trick has worked, we can reasonably assume, at least dozens, if not more, times before. It's not working with her. The scene ends very badly, very humiliatingly for him. The next day, of course, they're at rehearsal. She's doing that part, and she just can't do it well enough for Bob Fosse. She just can't give Fosse what he's looking for. What does he do? Kind of comes up with an excuse, tells her to have a seat, moves another woman, another dancer into that role. I've read the Fosse biography. That wasn't uncommon for Bob Fosse. Can we hold that Fosse in our minds and still celebrate his work in Pippin, in Chicago and Cabaret? The art we see here on display, you talk about a reckoning, a slight moment of reckoning, of acknowledgement from Woody Allen in Manhattan. That's what this entire film is. This is art as destruction, self-imposed pain, both in how his work leads to ultimately his demise, his character's demise, and in the way his work really truly brings him no relief or joy. And then, of course, it's pain imposed on others. I was going to say art is self-destruction, but it's more than that. Because of his work, everyone around him suffers. And a key scene is we talk about how it brings him no joy really is when he's talking to Jessica Lange's angel character in the film and says that nothing I ever do is good enough it's not beautiful enough it's not funny enough it's not deep enough it's not anything enough now when I see a rose that's perfect I mean that's perfect I want to look up to God and say how the hell did you do that and why the hell can't I do that? <laughs> now, that's probably one of your better con lines. Yeah, it is. But that doesn't mean I don't mean it. She rightfully points out that it's one of his better con lines, and I'm guessing that for non-Fosse fans or just those who don't have time anymore for stories of white male artists struggling, all that jazz is probably the perfect con. It's where he's kind of saying, I'm so bad don't you just love me, right? It's Fosse's equivalent of Eminem at the end of 8 Mile saying, I'm going to tell you everything you could use against me first before you can. You think I'm a fraud? Well, you know what? I'm going to out myself as a fraud before you even get the chance. And I'll also admit, going back to Fosse Verdon, I may struggle with this movie a little bit more on future viewings and Roy Scheider's performance in a post-Sam Rockwell as Bob Fosse world because on the TV series, Rockwell is both more abhorrent and beguiling. He's just better. He's just better than Roy Scheider, I would say. But I'd argue the Fosse we see in all that jazz is still a bastard whose work is that. It's his work. There's nothing he shows us that I can think of that is truly transcendent, that justifies his behavior or who he is. And you would imagine that the artist himself would be more inclined than some other filmmaker to want to redeem the artist. I'm thinking about people who make biopics about difficult artists, but not Fosse here telling his own semi-autobiographical story, which pretty much crosses straight into autobiography. And for all the heaviness of everything I'm touching on here, I love the fun of all that jazz, how Bob Fosse uses the medium of film to express himself the same way a dancer uses their body to the script reading scene in this film. The first time they have the whole company together of this new play they're working on and it starts. And from the first laugh that he gets from the company, he shuts down and the film shuts down with him. All the sound goes away for a moment. It's like a sitcom with canned laughter blaring at him and then pure silence. And we get only the sounds of his tapping 
and reaching for the cigarettes and breaking his pencil, the anguish of the work, the struggle that's ahead as he experiences it. That's Fosse putting us inside his head and body in that moment. I'll confess, I'm not sure I've done a great job here making the case for three of my favorite films of all time. But honestly, trying to tell someone why I love all that jazz and Apocalypse Now and Manhattan is kind of like asking me why I love my kids. I just do. They're part of me. And this movie is part of me. And maybe it traces back to being a film school movie when I was falling in love with the idea of being a filmmaker and studying film. This movie spoke to me. It still speaks to me. Well, it sounds like you're at a place where I love to get to as well with a film where it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about it. That's where I'm at. <laughs> so, Truly. So I envy you that. And and if listeners are disappointed that I didn't make the time to catch up with something like Camera Buff, which is maybe more revered, it's because I did finally watch all that jazz, knowing as well that it would be on your list. Uh, do you want me to butter you up with what I what I really liked about Not it? Really. Just deliver the no. It's, I, tell I, me I wish your star I, rating. I wish I could go. I don't have one yet. Mm. I, I still need to spend more time thinking about this film. But watched it carefully, and I wish I could go either way and be dramatic. But it's a good film. There's some really impressive stuff here. I liked it overall. Mm-hmm. I, I think maybe where I differ from you and why I don't feel so strongly is that I didn't feel the self flagellation as much as you did. I do think this is pretty self-indulgent. I think it does pull its punches. And what's interesting is some of the things that I liked about it, which I, I could have started with, are actually some of the production numbers where he does show his skill. And I'm not saying he shouldn't, but it does work against... Uh, I didn't quite see what you saw where he was kind of hiding that from us to only show the words. Well, think about just real quick, even the beginning, the amazing beginning that I love yes. to on Broadway, right? The audition that's number. The audition number. But that's still Fosse being Fosse. It's not really Fosse, the artist, showing anything. But he's it's, the director. It's all about... Yeah, it's, it's he, about him the, as the director. But he's, he's, the, he's no, no. relishing the role he's and the, the power he has. He's the director of the film. So if sure. you notice that this movie is opening with a gangbusters montage sequence of these auditions turning what we've seen a million times into something thrilling where the camera is pulling back sure. from him but to Fosse, encompass the character in the, that moment it doesn't doing matter. anything interesting no really. but, but that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about the filmmaker and this is part of the danger of one of these films this is why i'm suspicious about them when you get an artist making a movie about his life via his own art we're already at such a point of of uh, um, narcissism that it becomes – it just can't help but be onanistic in a way that it's self-fulfilling it, and it puts you in a bubble where nothing else matters. Now, I don't think this movie is undone by that, but it's definitely a quality to it. So that's why I say when that opening – you recognize that maybe this character, this stand-in, isn't being shown in the best light here. But the filmmaking is hugely impressive. Mm -hmm. And so he's at once – this is what I mean by pulling punches. The movie is saying, look at this kind of you know sleazy guy here, but also look at what I'm doing with the camera. I get it. And and that's – not a criticism in the like I like that scene. I think the opening scene is great. The other scene that is so good that is a brover example of his talent is the take off with us rehearsal number where we're in the intensity of the that horrified producers. The, right, because it, it puts you in the rehearsal space and then becomes cinematic with these close ups of the producers. That's really great. And you know what I loved? The ending. 
Bye Bye Love, where he's mm-hmm. imagining his his send off really to death, and it has this wonderful combination of effervescence and panic. And it's a great show. So mm-hmm. those are all examples where he's not hiding his talent. Sure. I mean, he wants you to see that as much as his warts. Okay. The problem I have is that the showing of the warts is where I think we're get, we get a little like, all right, yeah, you're depicting yourself as a womanizer, but um, and that and you you recognize your womanizing has inflicted pain on others. Yes. But then you you do something like cast Jessica Lange as the angel of death, or, or I think in general it got a little old watching women apologizing for being dismissed by Gideon. There were you know he, it's confessional, yes. But it's still dismissive of them in a way that that's that's how they're presented here. And the, another things like the Showtime folks to the mirror, the fact that we get that so many times, it becomes redundant to the point of self pity. Mm. So I think sure. there is where you're tracking. You know, yeah, but it's sad. It's warts. meant to be pathetic, and it becomes pathetic. I found it a little self pitying. Well, the so whole film is these, self-pitying. It is writing that line from start to finish. Yeah, There's and no I guess, doubt about it. And if we if we differ on it, it's it's how we interpret the level of of how that self-pitying is is effective. But I'm going to have to come down on your side. So okay. it's, a, it's a good well, film. Well, I'll take that. And and look, like I said, I do think, and this is kind of contradicting what I said, where I think him in telling his own story maybe showed more warts than actually some other third party would, but. You have now the distance and the perspective of Fosse Verdon, and I think they give more weight to those moments. And there is a modern perspective that they're able to put back on that without in any way taking away from or kind of violating – Fosse's art. His accomplishments. Yeah, and his accomplishments. Yeah, it's as you were describing that scene in Fosse Verdon, I got to say that felt more incriminating – just your description of mm-hmm. it did feel more incriminating than anything that really takes place. No, I think that's in fair. all that jazz. Even though those scenes are in all that jazz. Yes, they that, are. That's they are. Sure. And I think yeah. again, not to belabor the point too much, but even that scene you talked about, take off with us. There is a certain thrill I get watching it, but I think that even Fosse, the filmmaker, the director of the movie, has an ambivalence about whether or not what we're watching is any good at all. Really? Not not necessarily what he's presenting to us in the editing, but the character himself that we're watching that mirror image yeah. and what he's put on the screen, so to speak, what he's showing to those producers. I don't walk away from that as an objective viewer, someone who's not attached to it, thinking that what I just watch was an amazing musical number. I think there's an ambivalence to a lot oh, of I've, those scenes. I was pretty blown away. And also you get the line from his former lover, the mother of his mm-hmm. daughter, who says, what does she say? It's the best work you've ever done. I hate teary eyed. Right. I mean, if there's if actually if there's an encapsulation of all that jazz, that's it. Sure. It, it's that line right there. It's the best thing you've ever done. And I'm not sure if I'm quoting it directly. She may so- it's say something, something like harsher that. than I hate you. Yeah. Those two things together. It doesn't entirely resolve. Well, that's the, the that's the burden character. And that relationship is at the core of, of course, the the new show. Not that this was intended to be an advertisement for it. But if you're not watching it, I do strongly encourage it. And maybe as a way to kind of sum up my picks here, there is a key moment in camera buff where the camera does eventually turn from his daughter and his coworkers and everything going on in the party and gets turned on himself. And in some form or another, I think all these filmmakers we've talked about, Woody Allen, certainly Bob Fosse and Kozlowski there too in camera buff, 
they're all acknowledging that at some point, in some form, <laughs> that's what the artist is inevitably going to do. They are going to turn it inward for better or for worse. Certainly, I would say for better, looking back here at my choices. If you want to revisit any of those, or I know we kind of went out of order there with Alien and Apocalypse Now, if you want to go back and see exactly how our picks line up, you can do that by going to filmspotting.net and clicking on lists right there at the top of the page. This is one of our year-by-year countdowns that started with the year 2004, which is the year before the show started. We have top 10 lists for every year since 2005. We don't necessarily for everything pre-2005. So we've been filling in those gaps. We actually still have 1980 left to do, and we may dive deeper here into the 70s as well. Again, filmspotting.net slash lists to view those lists. And Josh, I'm sure you have some honorable mentions. I took Sam's advice here. He was thinking as our producer, we've got these top 10 lists every year that we've done the show. Why not make these year by year list top 10s as well? And for me, I had enough really good options and felt like enough of a completist, despite some regrets I'm going to touch on that I felt like I could reasonably rank a top 10. So I've got a six through 10. What are some of the other titles you definitely want to mention? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, a number of the other films, almost all the other films from 79 I've seen are either ones I like, okay, or are are pretty bad stinkers. So I don't have a full top 10 here. But as I mentioned, Manhattan would be my number six. And then at seven, I would put My Brilliant Career, which is Gillian Armstrong's period drama based on the semi-autobiographical novel by Australian feminist Miles Franklin. I saw that years ago. It's really strong. So those two would round out my top seven, at least. My number six is Monty Python's Life of Brian. Shane from Melbourne, Australia wrote in, I love Alien and Apocalypse Now, but there's only one film I go back to religiously each year, pun definitely intended, The Life of Brian. Aside from everything that has already been written and said about the genius of this comedy classic. It's also personally a real line in the sand movie for me, a way to determine who are the good people in this world and who are the splitters. So as penance for leaving Brian out of your poll choices, get yourself a hot bag of otter's noses, bless your cheese maker and write a million times on the film spotting website. Long live the people's front of Judea. Thank See, you, Shane. If I had seen all of Life of Brian, I would have gotten that reference. Oh, no. But I, no, I, I've just seen, I don't know if it counts. If you've seen like the guy maybe who wrote the book on religious it, movies. Well, that's, you see, you got to read the book. No, I that's know. That's not what it's I about. I know, but it, if it I've seen, sounded better. <laughs> if I've seen 80% of it not in order over the years, yeah. can I still put it on my top 10? No. You okay, can't see there you Actually, go. Those are the rules. Real life. The Albert Brooks film is my number seven movie of 79. Kramer versus Kramer. The best picture winner is my number eight. Another one you haven't seen. Loser. My number nine. <laughs> Taylor Cole. <laughs> I'll accept not having seen Kramer versus Kramer. Hey, it's a really, really Camera good buff? film. OK, loser. <laughs> Taylor Cole wrote in. Warriors come out to play. A Walter Hill's film is my number nine. The Warriors. And finally, number 10. You know what? It wasn't only one film I caught up with for this list. I sacrificed Stalker, and instead I watched The Black Stallion and Being There, the Peter Sellers vehicle directed by Hal Ashby that did crack my top 10. We heard from Tony Sturgeon, who says, I've always appreciated Life of Brian. It does an amazing job of seeming to send up religion while actually supporting it through its criticisms of those using religion for their own purposes. But I finally saw Hal Ashby's being there six months ago. And wow, I can't believe this movie has existed for most of my life without me being able to appreciate it over and over again. Peter Sellers is nothing short of brilliant. And in today's atmosphere, the movie is as relevant as ever. I do agree with that. And 
I'd only watched about half of it when we got together over the weekend. And I said I was still kind of feeling it out, yeah. appreciating it, but not really all in on it. I honestly, at that point, thought there's no way it would make my top 10. And then three moments happened that elevated it. And one is really even hard for me to explain why I find it so funny, but it's the image of Peter Sellers walking with Melvin Douglas, who is this friend, this rich Benefactor, businessman, advisor to the president. The wheelchairs. Can you explain to me why that's so hilarious? Gag, because like everything else in the film, it takes a few minutes for you to realize you're laughing. That's it. Yeah. Like all of a sudden, it's just two guys walking down a hallway. They're not doing anything funny, inherently. But something about (laughs) then when you realize that two butlers are walking behind them well, that's slowly part of it. who are pushing the wheelchairs. And then the other part of it is that Melvin Douglas actually needs the he wheelchair because he's yes. dying and he could collapse any minute. And of course, our Chauncey Gardner, Peter Sellers, really doesn't need it at all because of his little leg injury. No. And yet there he is. And just something about the decorum of it and how it really doesn't fit in that moment, doesn't fit for that character. And then he's even got the hiked up pants on top of it. It cracked me up. They're buddies. They're wheelchair buddies. Yeah, it cracked me up. So being there, I also watched for this list. So instead of camera buff and other highfalutin things. But no, being there is one that has come up by listeners so often over the years. I felt bad about not seeing Hal Ashby's Harold and Maude. So I was able to catch up with that about a year or two ago. Thought I had to see this. Really glad I saw it. Maybe on a revisit. I mean, if I, I could put it on a top ten at this point, since I don't have others, I like otherwise more. have a top ten. Sure. But yeah, but I mean, it's 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 good. It's really good. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll probably I'll rank it alongside all that jazz. How's that for you? Okay. <laughs> Okay, I'll take it. The two other moments I will highlight, it's when we get Louise, who is his former maid, and she is now in a home, and she's sitting with some other people, and she's watching this idiot on TV, and she underlines really one of the key themes of the film, and it's not that speech in and of itself that really gets me, though I love how she says, point blank, it's for sure a white man's world in America. I raised that boy since he was the size of a pissant, and I'll say right now, he never learned to read and write. (laughs) There he is, a guy who truly doesn't know how to read or write, is a complete moron, is on TV, and everyone thinks he's a genius, but it isn't just that. It's that Hal Ashby times the ending of her little speech so that on TV, they burst out in applause. The audience sure. applauds yeah. right at the end of that. Yeah, it's it's on the nose now, but it probably wasn't as on the nose in 79. Good point. But I, I, that did come across my mind even before she said that is this is you know because you meet her early yeah. in the film and when he walks out of that brownstone you see that he's actually in this like really run down neighborhood and it's like this guy's a walking mm-hmm. metaphor for white privilege yes I mean, he is it becomes clear to us now in 2019 pretty early in the film yeah now finally there's a scene with pallbearers carrying the casket of a man who's being eulogized in the moment and they're whispering while carrying him about who should be the next president, who basically they are going to anoint, who these power brokers, these businessmen are going to make the next president. And 
as far as satire, it hit me in that moment. This is basically the death of Stalin, except unlike, I was just right, that. unlike yeah. communist Russia, here in America, we just go about our political lunacy more politely. Uh-huh. That's kind of the takeaway from that scene. Well, and, and under the guise of business. Yeah, Corporate business, right? Yeah, death of Stalin may be influenced by this film. Also, obviously, Forrest Gump came to mind mm-hmm. while watching it, and Idiocracy, too. It's it's like the sure. predecessor for, for all of those. Yeah, I think I have about 30 movies, close to 30 from 1979 ranked, and I will put the complete ranking probably on Letterboxd and linked to that from our website, filmspotting.net slash list. Those are our top five films of 79. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. So as a reward for winning our best of 79 poll, Ridley Scott's Alien gets some time alone in the spotlight. We revisit our 2016 Sacred Cow review next. Stay with us. When trumpets were mellow And every gal only had one fellow No need to remember when Cause everything didn't party because we wanted to focus on school and get into good colleges. And it worked. We are not one-dimensional. We are smart and fun. Woo! Excuse me. Oh, oh. Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver in the trailer for Book Smart. It's the feature directing debut of actress Olivia Wilde. Been in quite a few movies, but I know we're both big fans of Drinking Buddies. Book Smart is a high school comedy in the super bad vein with maybe some ladybird DNA in there. You may recall I brought it up as one of my key questions, maybe my number one question of the summer movie season. It debuted at South by Southwest in March, had a great response there. It opens wide this weekend, and it's the film we will be reviewing on next week's show. We will be reviewing it, but what are we going to do for a top five? We got to come up with a top five that yeah. pairs with Booksmart. We're batting around um, high school parties, uh, high school movie parties, to be clear. Sure. We're not going to share our You, you know, threw so many raging keggers as a kid that you couldn't wait to <laughs> suggest be, high school parties. It'd be a very short list on my end. I think Sam mentioned female friendships. Which I really like. I do like. I mean, I know we've done movies about friendship. At some point, but that's obviously casting a very wide net, and this is more specific. Do we restrict this to like you know younger, like high school or college age, or maybe we don't have to? Maybe there's maybe not we a, don't. I don't have know. To. We got to look a little bit more into this. Also, we're still open, obviously, to other ideas. So, if anyone has a better idea, you can send it to us. Feedback at filmspotting.net or reach out on Twitter. I'm at Larson on Film. Adam is at Filmspotting. Quick note about the Film Spotting Meetup coming up June 23 in Los Angeles. That is still the date. I've gotten some good suggestions from a couple of people of where we could meet, likely in the Venice Beach area. I have appointed Brett Merriman as the head of the social committee. So he's hmm. 
going to get back to me with a list of options. Yeah, I figured he knows better than I. When we nail that down, it'll be at filmspotting.net slash events. That's also where you can get information and enter to win advanced screening or run of engagement passes. Right now, we have passes to give away to a Monday, June 10th screening of Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die. It's at 7 p.m. AMC River East downtown. Again, Monday, June 10th, if you are a Chicago area listener and want to get a chance to see that movie for free before it comes out, that is your chance, filmspotting.net slash events. It opens on the 14th of June, and that's when we're going to have a review of it. That's our current plan. You have seen this movie already, Josh. I have not. I have, and listeners should take advantage of this opportunity. This It's funny in discussing being there. I felt similarly during this where you don't – and maybe this isn't a surprise knowing Jarmusch and the deadpan tone that he has, but you don't realize exactly what this movie is doing for a little bit. And then you kind of get on its wavelength. I think I got on its wavelength. I don't know. That's what we'll talk about. We'll see what you thought uh, was going on in Dead Don't Die when we review it. We hope to review it and we can compare notes then. Massacre Theater is the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it last week, we're going to offer you a little bit of last week's Massacre. And the kids wanted animals, so this year each camper will stalk and kill his own bear in our private wildlife preserve. Are you sure the children can, uh, can hack that? We'll see. Hmm. I didn't study Sam's pick of clip there closely. I don't know if that was the one syllable you got right as that actor or not. I would hope he picked that one. Help listeners out a little bit. (laughs) Entries so far are not bad. The hat is not brimming, despite the fact that I think it was maybe the most obvious massacre theater, or at least in the top 10 in film spotting history, as we kind of gave it away with a couple of lines in the scene. Yeah, we name a place that should be all you need. It really should be. If you know what film we just massacred now that we've shamed you sufficiently, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is this Monday, the 27th. So how does a fat boy from nowhere get to be a soul man? Gotta kill the person you were born to be in order to become the person you want to be. I'm thinking of changing my name to Elton. But that's my name. Yeah, I know. Wow, cue the Josh Larson eye roll. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, this is this is really putting my anything can be great mantra to the test. I just have You just I, do not want to see Rocket I, Man. I have no need for this, Adam. I mean, do any of us really? I didn't make it. Yeah, but you're still entertaining the possibility of seeing it. I am. <laughs> the trailer. For the Elton John biopic, Rocket Man, starring Taron Egerton. It opens wide <sighs> next weekend. And we were planning to skip it. And yes, we might still skip it. But we do sort of have a hole in the schedule in a couple of weeks. And the it's reviews... It's not a Rocket Man shape. The hole. reviews coming out of Cannes, though, are pretty interesting, Josh. You have to acknowledge that. So what? <laughs> well, it just means it's probably not going to be Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, I know. At least if it's a failure, it might be an interesting failure. As someone who has not even seen Bohemian Rhapsody, I need to set that aside. I was going to say, you aren't even burned out on these biopics. You didn't watch that. I somehow, I survived without having seen Bohemian Rhapsody. I think I'll make it without having seen Rocket Man. Hmm. I think I'm going to end up seeing Rocket Man, but 
it may not be the film we discuss because we've got another option. We are overdue for another nine from 99 review. We have nine films planned, as the title suggests, from the year 1999, 20 years ago, that we are reconsidering. So far, we've only done The Sixth Sense and The Matrix. And we thought, why not bust out Fight Club and maybe even pair Fight Club with our top five David Fincher scenes. I think I like this one, even though I'm intimidated as hell because I'm going to be intimidated by any filmmaker's body of work and trying to pick out five individual moments. But I think I've seen all of Fincher's films, at least. It's rare that, that any helps. filmmaker, right, who who has over six or seven movies that I've seen all of them. But at least here, I shouldn't have too much homework to do. No homework, but this is, I mean, this is a set piece guy, right? I mean, yeah. he, he makes these little distilled, sh- perfect short films within his film. So to choose among those would be tough. Yeah. And already, I'm pretty sure I've picked the basement scene from Zodiac as one of my most terrifying scenes. I've picked the opening with Hurdy Gurdy Man as one of my best uses of classic rock. So I've kind of already done it. Maybe I'll just paste together moments from other top fives. There you go. Okay. Easy enough. The list is done. We do encourage, of course, your feedback and your picks. Make sure we don't overlook a great David Fincher scene or moment. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And just in case somehow that all falls through and we have to talk about a new movie, you got to help us decide which one it could be. So thinking about Rocketman and some other movies that are opening the weekends of the 31st and the 7th, we are posing to you this poll question. What should we review on episode 732? Your options are... Dark Phoenix, about the X-Men character, Jean Grey. Josh, I'm going to need just a little bit more enthusiasm. Just just a little bit more. I know it's late. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Okay, this, this I would do. This sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Late Night, Emma Thompson, written and co-starring Mindy Kaling. This was on my top five summer movie questions list. Ma was also there. Things Are Looking Up, the horror thriller with Octavia Spencer. Rocket Man. Oh, why? Why are they doing it to us? Well, so we know your vote. It's between Late Night and Ma. If I, Yes, it's between Late Night and Ma. If I've ever been tempted to rig the film spotting voting system. You don't even know how to log in, but you'll figure it out. <laughs> Ocean's Eleven style. Oh, I'll, I'll hire somebody. All right. We want to know your pick. Vote now at filmspotting.net. Don't say anything like that except uh, molecular acid. You must be using it for blood. It's got a wonderful defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it. What about Kane? Here's your pen, bro. A scene there from Ridley Scott's Alien, a movie that got the sacred cow treatment on film spotting back in 2016. As we discussed earlier, listeners voted it the best film of 1979 over Apocalypse Now. We both went the other way. I had Apocalypse Now as my number one film of 79. Alien is my number five. You had Alien at four. Alien was at four. Apocalypse Now was at two. This film has grown and grown in stature over the years, and we thought, why not? On its 40th anniversary, revisit our Sacred Cow conversation. We'll come back after that, and we'll share some feedback we got in response to that review. Dallas? You're going to have to hold your position for a minute. I... I've lost the signal. What? You sure? Look, look around. Are you sure that it's not there? I mean, it's got to be around there somewhere. Check that out, Lambert. You may be getting interference. 
Dallas, are you sure there is no sign of it? I mean, it is there. It's got to be around there. Dallas? Am I, am I clear, Lynn, but I want to get the hell out of here. There's a single image from 1979's Alien that serves as the perfect visual metaphor for the entire movie, Adam. At the point I'm thinking of, the title creature is trapped in the air ducts of the Nostromo, the commercial towing vessel where most of the movie is set. Dallas, the ship's captain, played by Tom Skerritt, crawls in after it, hoping to finish it off with a flamethrower. The image I'm thinking of is the hatch to the air duct, which closes behind him in the shape of a metallic spiral so that our circular view of him gets smaller and smaller until it shuts completely and he effectively disappears. This, in essence, is what Alien does to us. It constricts and constricts in terms of narrative and use of screen space until we're face to face with a monster. Now, the first time I saw Alien, this left me breathless. But how does it work on a second or perhaps a third or fourth viewing? Taking another look for this Sacred Cow review of the sci-fi classic, Adam, did familiarity with the movie's narrative and technique lessen the intensity of the experience, or did your appreciation for the film only grow, like a cute little xenomorph freshly exploded from the chest of its human carrier? Yeah, I'll go that way. Okay, It was definitely the latter. I think my appreciation for the movie did grow, and you're absolutely right in terms of that moment being a really good one where you're just keenly aware, too, that he is probably not coming back. There's just something really dreadful about when that hatch closes and he is trapped in that air duct. It's been the trend. Yeah, it absolutely has. And that sense of claustrophobia, you're right, is a key part of this film really from the very beginning. And I want to go back to the very beginning of the movie because it has not only a great opening, it has a great opening credit sequence, Josh, right? Where we see the letters alien spelled out as... So slowly. Yeah, so slowly, just coming to life, forming before us just as the camera is panning and we're seeing this X-moon or whatever that the xenomorph comes from. These letters revealing themselves that way really does set up the entire movie because this is a film that is going to take its time revealing to you ultimately what kind of film it is. And of course, as well, which we'll talk about who the hero of the movie is. And after we get done with that opening credit sequence, we get a shot that feels like it was lifted right out of the beginning of Star Wars, right? And this movie, of course, following right in the wake of Star Wars, any film that is certainly set in space, a sci-fi movie like this, is going to have to reckon with that in some way. And so we get that shot, that famous shot, from the underbelly of this large cargo ship as it goes by. And audiences, very familiar, as almost anyone would have been at this time with Star Wars, may have felt like, oh, maybe we're in for another movie like that. Mm -hmm. And of course, what Ridley Scott, I think, whether it was conscious or not, it's a nice little subversion of your expectations because everything that follows ultimately shows you that this is not going to be Star Wars at all. It's not going to be fantasy. It's not really even going to be spectacle. And from there, we then get the camera as it moves, that long shot of the camera roaming through the corridors of the Nostromo. And I actually watched this opening sequence just three or four times on Blu-ray after I watched the film in its entirety again, just because I enjoy watching the opening so much. I love the way the camera almost seems like a probe that has been sent to this ship to capture footage from the site of a disaster, maybe. It's as if it's already an abandoned ship, that it's haunted, that something has gone horribly wrong. And so it immediately piques our curiosity 
there's this inherent sense of mystery and then ultimately a sense of discovery. You're looking for whatever is going to be around every corner. And those little touches, the rustling of papers as the camera goes by or on the table at one point, there are these two figurines that kind of bobble with motion. It's this sense that this place has been lived in, that people should be here, that it's been lived in. Yeah, there's a human touch, even though we see no humans. Exactly. And so it makes you wonder, is this place inhabited by ghosts? There's just something off about it. And of course, as you move through those corridors, too, it's not like Star Wars. It's not like 2001, the vision Kubra gave us, where the corridors aren't sleek. The spaceship doesn't feel really clean and maybe futuristic as we have come to envision it. It feels used, right? It feels not only rustic, but there's actual rust on the metal that makes up these corridors. And the more I watched it, the more I realized just how long and seemingly endless the corridors felt. But they are really tight. Again, going back to Star Wars or 2001, where Darth Vader steps on the ship and it feels like you have these vast spaces. There's a certain vastness to the length of it, which actually just makes it feel even more imposing and heightens that sense of dread because you just have no idea what is out there. But when they're in those spaces, they are really confined by that space. And even when we finally meet the characters, and I love the fact that we're introduced to them over a dinner scene, and Mm -hmm. it casually throws us in. Even there, I noticed how often, and throughout the rest of the film you see this too, how often we see these characters in close-up. There really isn't a sense of them ever pinned against this vast landscape the way Ridley Scott does, I think, to really good effect, actually, in Prometheus. But here, he's going for something completely different. There's always equipment, like, hanging over them. It's yeah. it's like a submarine, really, is the feeling that you get. Mm-hmm. I will say that I think Star Wars shares with this the lived-in feel, though. I mean, there are the, – the ship you're mentioning – in the very beginning of Star yeah, Wars, not has that clean look, not the Empire, but a lot of the other places we go and ships we see have this same lived-in feel. So I do like that. And I think also, I'm sure we'll get to this at some point, but what Alien shares in common with Star Wars is just fantastic creature design and mm-hmm. shows you how important it is to do that well. I'm glad you started with that opening because... One of the triumphs of this film is also its production design. And that's what really stood out to me this time. I don't know. I guess maybe I'm just instinctually a narrative guy. When I see films for the first time, I clue into the story. And I'll notice things about production design. But often it's not until I go back and can let the story run around in the back of my head and look at more of the details that I'll see some of these things. And man, what you're talking about in the opening is so crucial. Uh, We should probably say that Michael Seymour was the production designer here. He was nominated for an Oscar. But that's You know, the spiral hatch I talked about has everything to do with that. Mm -hmm. That's an element of production design. There is um, that 2001-like communication center where they talk to Mother, the AI program running Mm -hmm. the ship. That's so different from the rest of it, right? It's white. It has the little bulbs of light all over it. And Mm -hmm. I love that contrast. And the tiny little screens. Yep, yep. And that sequence when they wake up from their hypersleep chambers or whatever they are, it adds to what you were talking about in this sense of emptiness in the ship and who who works here, who's been here. And when those oblong egg-like contraptions open. Very egg-like. What it does is it makes the humans seem like the aliens, like they're emerging. And it's just another early way we're put off center mm-hmm. in this film to unsettle us. And okay, what are what are these shapes coming out? Well, well, that looks human. And 
it's not until really they all start coming out of their sleep and fall into their more recognizably human activities, like sharing a meal, that we start to feel a little bit comfortable, like, okay, we've got our bearings now. And of course, after that, things just go crazy. Exactly. And you're right about that sequence where they emerge. And John Hurt is the first character we see emerge. He plays Kane, who, of course, is going to famously meet a very tragic end later in the film. But that's another one that I rewound and watched over and over again because it almost catches you off guard. When you first see the camera, again, roaming the corridors, it stops on the door, the door opens, and it's dark inside. And you're trying to make out a visual of what's inside there. And I had something completely different in my head from what then ultimately emerged in the light, which is these pods. And then you get this kind of quick dissolve as it actually changes the camera angle because when it's coming into the room, it's not on John Hurt, I don't believe. But then all of a sudden it is on John Hurt. So we moved the camera angle with this dissolve. And as he emerges, you're right, it adds to the sense, as you said, of something being alien with them. And as we get to that sequence... That's just another one of those little touches that Ridley Scott and the screenwriter Dan O'Bannon here gets so right is we meet them as characters and we meet them as an ensemble in that dinner scene. We ultimately learn all the basics of their character as we're going to see play out over the course of the film through that conversation and in their interactions with each other. And I love that they give us that moment in a way that makes it about that ensemble and makes it about them as characters. It's not about plot. It's not about setting up the story at all, but it is about giving us that background, ultimately, to who they are. Still with us, Brett? Right. Yeah. Oh, I feel dead. Anybody ever tell you you look dead? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, right. I just forgot something, man. Uh, Before we dock, I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation has never been on a, an equitable level. Well, you get what you contracted for like everybody else. Yes, but everybody else gets more than us. Oh, mother wants to talk to you. And we instantly understand the dynamic among all of them. You have... Yafet Koto and Harry Dean Stanton as sort of the grunts who work down below and they're arguing about getting more pay, their mm-hmm. share. They There's a class system at work sure. that is part of the more thematic interests in the movie. And it's so elegantly laid out how that structure is in place and where the tension points are. And of course, that comes into play later at crucial moments when rank is pulled or not pulled. Yeah. And that all adds to the tension and the suspense as well. It does, definitely. And let's talk a little bit about its themes or what the movie is about. I don't know how much that really did factor into your viewing or your pleasure viewing this film, but we've already mentioned 2001 or I have a few times and we talked about Star Wars. It's hard not to watch this film and think about those movies. And of course, think about all the films that have followed Alien, some within its own franchise that are so beholden and owe so much to this film because we've seen so many elements that were done first here and really probably done best in Ridley Scott's film. But of course, at its core, if you're a fan of John Carpenter's The Thing, I believe from 1982, you'll think, boy, these films are awfully similar. And of course, that film followed this movie a few years later. But the original, the John Carpenter film is based on the Howard Hawks film, The Thing from Another World from 1955. So it's the same basic storyline of an isolated group that comes upon Mm -hmm. an alien creature that is determined to survive. That's 
all its objective really is, and it's going to do it by taking out these characters one at a time. Each movie even has a similar character that gets it in the form of the Kurt Russell character in the Carpenter version, and of course Sigourney Weaver here is Ripley. But maybe because 2001 was a movie I just recently saw at the Music Box at the 70mm Film Festival, that it was so much in my mind, but one little adjustment that I saw this film make from 2001, setting up nicely Aliens. And of course, Aliens is in my head as well. We know the sequel and what James Cameron does with the material is this movie is one where it's not about the machine or technology being ultimately responsible for the downfall of these characters. There's no doubt that Ash, played wonderfully by the great British actor Ian Holm, is certainly on some level a villain. I'm not denying that. And you can understand her distrust, Ripley, her distrust for any non-human crew member that we see play out in the movie Aliens. But ultimately, he's just following orders, right? Even Mother, the master computer here, is just following orders. And I mentioned those tiny little screens. There's something actually in the way I think Ridley Scott tries to downplay the all-powerful technology, because unlike the menacing red dot that seems all-powerful in HAL, this is just this tiny little screen that just gives us the little green data. It's a tool of others. That's it. It's exactly right. And Mother is programmed, ultimately, by the corporation, just like Ash was. So not to belabor it, but even in 2001, of course, there is a group of people who have told HAL what the mission is and have decided to leave the crew in the dark. But I think there, there's more of a sense of the people responsible being genuinely curious about the monolith and what's going on by Jupiter. It's not so much about trying to exploit anything for capitalistic well, and, or military gains. And there's the question of if HAL has evolved no, in that film. No, so. you're absolutely right. And of course, there's also a question of whether or not the fact that they program him to keep a secret is in fact what kind of undoes him so mother is just doing what mother has been programmed to do ash is just doing what ash has been programmed to do so it's not as blatantly satirical or as anti-corporate as aliens is we don't have a burke character like paul riser here that you just really hate you come to feel that way a little bit about ash certainly but the movie seems to be really just setting up In retrospect, you can look at it in 1979 and see it as a film that seemed to presage in some way the me decade of the 80s without hitting you over the head with it. Aliens hits you over the head with it and I think does it in a good way. I love that film, too. But this is a movie that's just subtly kind of setting that up. And really, besides the anti-corporate notion here to the film, the tale at its core is as old as time. It's about hubris, right? It's about man's desire and ultimate futility at its inability to control nature. That really is what is at the core of this movie. And I think that's even why we feel a little bit of maybe sympathy is the wrong word as we learn more about Ash. But there's a sense of before we really know that he's complicit in not caring about the downfall of the other crew members, we see him as potentially a man of science. And we understand that what he's doing may have a purpose and may may have a good purpose. Did you want something? Yes, I, uh... had a little talk. How's, uh, how's Kane? He's holding, no changes. And, uh, our guest? Oh. Hmm? Well, as I said, I'm still collating, actually, but, uh, I have confirmed that he's got an outer layer of protein polysaccharides. It's a funny habit of shedding his cells and replacing them with polarized silicon, which gives him a prolonged resistance to adverse environmental conditions. Said nothing. Holm is so good. He's instantly creepy. 
creepy throughout. And I got to say, I never felt any sympathy for him. The most terrifying scene in this movie, and I remember when I saw this when I was young and even still strikes me today, is his I don't know if you can say death, but his bludgeoning and his refusal to die yeah. and the way they prolong his so-called life. I mean, that, there's just something so eerie about that. And But this is what I love about Holmes' performance is how he's, he's always trying to balance, um, you know, this Ash's impulse is to be logical and rational, to do whatever needs to be done to complete this mission he's been given. But he has to mask that under this veneer of human emotion. Right. So and Holm is the moment where he does this perfectly is when the other crew members, the quarantine debate, they're trying to get in and Ripley doesn't want to let them in. Mm-hmm. And Holm wants to let them in because he wants the creature in, but he masks that under human compassion by saying, well, they're my crewmates. Of course, I couldn't right. help but let them in. And just the the levels of duplicity there are also very creepy. So yeah, you're right. It touches very lightly on, I think there are two things here that if you want to look for theme or meaning, it is absolutely a capital satire to, to some degree. Mm-hmm. And also it is something of a feminist statement very lightly handled in the fact that Sigourney Weaver's Ripley is going to be the one who really, we get the sense, should have been in charge all along in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. ends up being in charge and has to solve things by meeting this alien, essentially. Not fleeing, not outsmarting it or anything like that, but meeting it face-to-face and conquering it. I think both of those things, as you said, are brought to full flourish more in Aliens by James Cameron. Both Mm -hmm. of those elements, whether or not we were thinking about maybe trying to fit in Aliens too, but whether or not that makes Aliens the better film, I don't know. I'd have to take another look to say. Um, But I I really like how streamlined and delicately minimalist um, that Alien handles those two things while letting them be there and letting us over them. But really what it does, I want to get back to the creature design and talk about this a little bit because it's just, yeah, it's just so iconic. And it, you you wonder, well, why is that? How many creatures have we seen at the movies? And this shows you the brilliance of being able to do something different because in Batman v Superman, they roll out another one at the end of these space troll things that we've seen in how many movies? I mean, Alison Wilmore of Film Spotting SVU tweeted out something when that movie came out. I think she said, who wore it better? And it was like the space troll from Batman v Superman, the Lord of the Rings troll, which that came to mind right away. And then one other one, I think, from another recent superhero movie. And they all looked exactly the same. Right. Alien came up with something with Giger's design and working with the special effects team. They all did win an Oscar for their work. And I think there are a few key reasons why this does stick with us. And one of them is just that it's rooted in biology. They spend so much time on this thing's biology. And that because we can recognize that and we can understand that even though it's alien, it makes it so much scarier. I mean, I'm so B, my daughter is in fourth grade now. She's going through an intense animal phase, exploration phase. So she was telling me the other day about, and she'll be mortified that I don't get this right, but I believe it's a wasp or something that will land on another bug, lay its eggs, and when they hatch, they will have that other bug to eat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's how they grow, right? That's horrible. And it's happening right around us. So something like alien transplants that everyday occurrence to this alien world 
makes it happen to humans mm-hmm. in the way they trace this biology and these parasitic functions. And to me, it's just rooting it in some level of reality that makes it that much more terrifying. And they get all the details right. Think about how goopy, you know, and how tactile this movie is when it comes to the alien. You've got that alien blood that's like acid, you mm-hmm. know, you've got Hertz blood after the chest explosion thing is just all over the room. Right. Ridiculous amount of blood. Ashes, quote unquote, blood, that kind of milky, creamy milk. Oh, that's terrifying. And then, of course, we have whatever is coming dripping out of the alien's mouth. So we're just drenched in all of this stuff that we can feel. We can feel it coming through the screen, and it's just a it, it's just such a goopy horror experience, this yeah, movie. it is. And actually, while I was watching it, it made me think about a complaint you had about a film from the 70s that's a masterpiece, which is The Exorcist, which has some similarly sexual bodily functions and all sorts of other fluids that we see play out and horrifying sequences. And you were very turned off by those. Didn't buy in a the minute of those. But here, something like the chest bursting scene seems very similar to me in some ways and for me just as effective. I think the reason I didn't buy any of those is because they seemed, even though they were taking place on Earth with an actual human, they seemed less realistic, if that makes any sense. Once you're rooting what's going on here, once we've walked ourselves through the process from egg to hatching mm-hmm. to, again, all these recognizable biological functions, that makes it more real to me than what was going on in The Exorcist. Well, how aware of you? I mean, you mentioned biology, but let's talk specifically about sex. How much were you aware as you watched it about the phallic nature of the alien that also seems to be mixed with a very feminine aspect to it and the fact that, I mean, O'Bannon himself, the guy who wrote the original screenplay for this film, is pretty explicit in some of his interviews about this movie saying that he was really trying to make every male in the audience feel queasy, that he was trying to give you almost the most terrific version of a birth scene. And that's what it is in the form of John Hurt. And even in the form of the face hugger that first attaches itself to John Hurt, this is basically, as he put it, an oral rape. He is trying to give men the feeling of watching a horror film that women have felt watching horror films for decades. Yeah, I know that I know that thesis is out there and that um, it, it was, you know, partly intentional, as you say, but I got to say, I never really registered to me that way. And again, it goes, maybe it simply goes back to myself being as a kid, like into animals to the degree of watching so many nature shows that that's just stuff of earth to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's all stuff that animals do. And certainly it has that metaphorical value too. But to me, it was more a situation of, okay, what if you were somewhere in space and these sort of processes that we avoid as civilized humans began to happen to us. Yeah. Um, and, and that was frightening enough for me. Yeah, I'm with you there. And I think going back to Weaver a little bit, and one of the real delights of this film being that the movie really takes its time and is quite deliberate in how it reveals itself, what kind of movie it really is. And that comes through in the way that we don't really know who the protagonist is. We don't really know who our hero or our heroine is going to be. And this movie launched Weaver's career. And we've talked about her a little bit when we've talked about aliens. I know it's made a top five or two of mine over the years, but really with her, 
what she exudes is this sense of real pragmatism, right? It's not like she's a super badass. She becomes more of a badass as the films by go on. Yeah, by necessity. But it's just her pragmatism that we respect the most. And I think what really comes through in this, you know, going back to the line about how I said I had some sympathy for Ian Holm, what I really meant was just the fact that if you do see him early on as a pure scientist, I mean, you've discovered an alien creature out there in the universe. Of course, you're going to be curious and actually want to figure out what it is as opposed to just destroying. Sure. And he is serious about his work and we're as curious. So I guess you do. You want to follow him along for those reasons. Right. But unlike that creature, which, as Ash describes it in a way that you could describe certainly a lot of corporations that we saw on screen in the 1970s in this era kind of of disillusionment he describes it as the perfect organism i admire its purity its sense of survival unclouded by conscience remorse or delusions of morality ash isn't describing a biological creature at all he's describing an entity an unfeeling entity whose only goal is to continue to exist and to flourish right and so you can see how that metaphor of course harkens back to the capitalism a little bit but what makes ripley so great is that She exhibits, instead of the hubris that really the corporation exudes, she has respect for that creature and the potential threat of that creature and the unknown of nature in general. But she also, of course, has respect for human life. The whole reason she won't let that thing on board the ship is because she recognizes that it could be a threat and it could be a threat to everyone on board. Of course, Ash and the company, they don't have either of those traits, unfortunately, but the little bit of misdirection, again, going back to the Star Wars bit, maybe, and the fact that it'd be very easy to think that Tom Skerritt is the captain is maybe going to be the hero of this movie. And they just keep getting picked off one by one until we realize, okay, actually the person who's made the most sense the whole time, she's really the hero of this story. Now, what's interesting thinking about her as a feminist icon, if you will, I wonder though about the fact, Josh, looking back, and I don't think this is really a knock on the film, but I just think it's worth discussing. It is interesting that when we see her interacting with Veronica Cartwright, Lambert, who is perhaps a bit more of a stereotypical woman in an yeah, action movie, right? I would say she's, so. she's chain smoking and she's very afraid and she's yeah. hysterical. And in the point where the alien is coming down on her, she just cowers and she doesn't do anything. Whereas the like opposite Ripley, of Ripley. Yeah, Ripley is defined by her action. She's always acting, right? They're bickering with each other the first time we see them really interact with each other when they're doing their jobs. And then in a key scene where Ripley, as the senior officer, goes to Ash, and this is the scene you were referring to where he couches everything as if he really cared about human life. Well, what, what did you want me to do? I had to let them on board the ship. Kane might die. She points out to him that he didn't act within the manual. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. He didn't act like a science officer who should have known that they needed to stay in quarantine. And when he says, I care about doing my job just as much as you do, and you need to let me do my job, she just turns and walks away. The movie really does just have her in that moment. I don't know what she should have done instead, but she doesn't have any response to that. And she certainly doesn't put Ash in his place. She does consistently let Ash undermine her. Yeah, I think that didn't bother me because she doesn't quite yet have the authority over him that she might need to do anything because Mm -hmm. Dallas is still around and he's the captain at this point as long as he is around. I actually, you know, that was the scene for me where I felt like we would swing over her way because it would take guts even to go ahead and challenge him about that. I think the alternative would have been to just let it go. Mm -hmm. But no, she shows here that just because they're equals in terms of colleagues, just because 
maybe this would come into play. She's a woman. She's not going to drop it. She's going to pursue it with him. She's going to go tell him, hey, you did it. You did it against my command. And actually, maybe she is his superior at that point. But anyways, in this experience of the film, it, it felt to me like that was her stepping out. That was one of the moments where she did try to take charge mm-hmm. by holding to the quarantine. And even though that didn't work, she still stepped out and was like, hey, this was out of line. For sure. And at least my sympathies go with her yeah. at that point. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I did want to ask you about, and I've debated whether or not I should bring this up only because I potentially look a foolish for not getting it or b foolish for not spending more time researching it and finding an answer because it's probably out there. But did the chronology of the corporation slash mother slash ash, did the chronology of their understanding of what the creature is or what their desires for the creature, the alien were, was that clear to you? Because the reason I'm asking is, as you watch the movie play out without knowing that there's anything nefarious going on. Right. You just assume that he is being a man of science. Ash is saying, I want that organism on board this ship. Yeah. You don't know why or what he's going to do with it or that anyone else cares about it. You just think he wants it. And like I said, you can kind of understand that. But the notion is almost there's this tremendous irony in the fact that somebody set up a distress signal that was actually a warning and the warning signal is the very thing that drew them to the planet, right? Instead of it doing its job and functioning as a signal that would scare people away, it actually drew the people there. Okay, but as you get through the film, it becomes clearer from the discussions with Mother and what Ash says to Ripley in that confrontation that the notion is Ash was put on this ship all along. The right. mission of this ship from the very beginning was to find yeah. that very beacon and to discover it and to take it back. So I just wanted to be clear on that. That is how we see it, that from the very beginning, there was never any accident them stumbling across this on LV-426. Am well, I right? I don't know about that. I think you're right in that wasn't Ash a last minute replacement? Right. Yes. So I think that And they suggest he was because they knew. Right. So, but, you know, for me, it didn't bother me or trip me up for a couple of reasons. I mean, they may have put him on there because they somehow found out that there was the possibility of this. Mm -hmm. And this particular crew was going to be nearby. Maybe it was the closest vessel nearby. Yeah. So that didn't bother me. And also, once communications are back up, you know... I was just assuming that there were other communications going to Ash by some way sure. through Mother or something No, like I, that. I did as well. In fact, I thought there was a scene maybe where Ash was in the computer room with Mother by himself, and I went back and scanned through it, and that doesn't exist. Though I love that little bit of misdirection again where Ripley's in there and yes. then Ash in that shot of yeah, all yeah. of a sudden right next to her. Yes. And that is pretty scary. But it's not something that really bothered me so much as it's interesting that if we buy the idea that the corporation knew all along that this organism somehow existed out there Mm -hmm. and had an objective to bring it back. And that's really why they put these people on this ship. It, of course, opens that larger question of, well, how did they know it was out there? And maybe this is some of the stuff Ridley Scott was attempting to answer in Prometheus, which I don't remember enough about it. You're getting a headache territory now. But it did occur to me that then something that is fundamental to the story is not explained at all. They really do leave it out there just for you to think about and I guess ponder how did they know how did they ever get information back about this life force it was something anyway that did 
stick in my mind as I watch the movie. One thing I wanted to get to before we wrap up is... I hope you're going to say Jerry Goldsmith. <laughs> well, we can talk about that, um, and, and we probably should. I was going to talk about the performances a little bit, yes. and you touched on this in the beginning when you mentioned the close-ups, because so many of the key moments here are in close-up. They're partly in dialogue to establish that dynamic among the crew, but once that's set in place, we get a lot of the fear and the wonderment Mm -hmm. and the terror, really, at some point by close-ups. And I think Weaver is especially good at this home we talked about a little bit, and even Scarrett, too. And and just formally, what I like that Scott does with these close-ups is there's an early rhythm to the movie where we'll get one of those really tight. It's all face, and then the very next shot, after a quick cut, is some expanse, some wide vast expanse. Scarrett looking at the X-Moon itself. You know, we'll see his face and then we get this spectacular planetary Mm -hmm. vista. And then later on, there's the one of John Hurt in his space helmet when they're on the planet. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, fearful there. And then the next one is that cavernous egg-hatching lair. So those two come right after each other. And just going back to this sense of constriction that I was talking about at the beginning, I noticed this time that that rhythm slows down. As the movie goes on and we get less of the cutaway shots to expanse and more Mm close-ups and more interiors, and eventually that's all we're left with. So it's like the the movie's tightened itself, tightened the the actual space around us by the end, and and we're left with more of those close-ups that are We never get outside the ship. We don't. I think the last one we get outside is when she's in the escape Mm -hmm. shuttle. There's There's one of those when she's about to launch, but at that point, it's kind of a false a false relief right? because we're not really at the end. No. And Jerry Goldsmith, I wanted to bring him up because we've talked about really all the key players in this except for the composer. And I'm notoriously bad at describing why I like scores, but I really like this score. I mean, everything that we've talked about that's effective about this film in terms of this creeping sense of dread and the isolation and the deliberateness and the subtlety, those elements all do come through in the music. I'd agree. It's that I one of my first notes was, wow, hardly any score. Right. Like I didn't remember it that way, but right. what it is is that the score is in the exact right places. Yes. Yeah. And so it's I don't drawing think, attention to itself. No, and but I don't think you could call it like um necessarily subtle. No, like it, when it's, it's not, there, it's doing its, its not work. Hiding. No, no, but but it's it's just doing its work at absolutely the right moment. Let's jump into some feedback that we received back in 2016 when we first did that Sacred Cow review. We're going to start with Tanya McAvoy, who's in Denver. I thought you might mention Jodorowsky's Dune when discussing Alien. While yes, it's true Star Wars came before Alien, much of both stories and many other movies through the decades were inspired by H.R. Giger's drawings for Jodorowsky's adaptation of Dune that was never made. I just thought it would be interesting to note how different Alien or Star Wars might have been had these storyboards not been so heavily passed around. Alien, to be sure, might be the same as it was Giger who designed it, but which came first, the chicken or the egg? So if you're not sure what Tanya's talking about, all of those connections are covered in the 2014 documentary Jodorowsky's Dune that talks about the making of that film or the attempted making of that film. And I've seen Jodorowsky's Dune, though I'm not sure I saw it back in 2014 
prior to that sacred cow conversation, but Tanya is absolutely right to note those similarities. We also got this a little bit of longer feedback here, Josh, from Christopher in Lexington, Kentucky. Christopher, a longtime listener who likes to, well, let's just say point out when we're wrong about things. He says, I really enjoyed your discussion of Alien, but I have to disagree with your basic thematic reading of this film. I don't mean that your readings are wrong, but I've always seen this film in a different way. And the only reason I feel compelled to write in is because you seemed a bit overly dismissive of the reading that I want to put forth. I've always seen the film as very much a movie about man versus machine, or maybe more specifically about the horror and danger of the potential of humans becoming machines. I understand your point about the ship's computer being programmed by the corporation and Ash also being controlled by the corporation, but to my mind, the corporation is not a strong enough presence in this film for it to have the capitalistic thrust that you guys want it to have. Maybe you are letting the sequel, Aliens, bleed into your reading of this film. After all, the threat of the corporation is just barely touched on in this film. Literally, blink in the wrong place and you'll miss it. I get it, Christopher. What you cannot miss is the fact that the computer on board the Nostromo is called Mother. And while the alien is certainly birthed through John Hurt's King character, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to see Ian Holmes' Ash as the metaphorical father of the alien. After all, he and mother are working together to bring this alien into being. The alien is the result of a biological organism becoming or evolving into a machine or combining the two together. This is also picked up in Ash's name, Ashes to Ashes. That is, Ash is what we become after what makes us human dies. Josh, you buying what Christopher is selling? Um, I see the dots, Christopher. Um, yeah, okay. I, I guess those do connect. The, the one thing I would push back on the capitalism, though, is that there's something eerie and unsettling and accurate to me in having that be in the background, not mm-hmm. be in our face, in that there is this force that though we don't see it or think about it or talk about it all the time, it is still controlling the lives of the people on the ship. But but yeah, I see where you're going there. That's there's it's on the screen what you're talking about. Yeah, and I'll confess that I didn't go back and listen to our entire Sacred Cow conversation, but I looked at my notes and here anyway, I pointed out that it's not as blatantly satirical or anti-corporate as Aliens, and that Ash is just the surrogate. We don't have a Burke character, the Paul Reiser character in Aliens. We don't have that in Alien. But for me, what the film was really about, what Alien is really more about, is the classic tale of man's hubris, that desire to try to control nature and the failure to do that, which kind of almost takes us back to our discussion of the Black Stallion earlier in our top five. So I don't know that... Christopher and I are as far off as he might think. That said, he's got another interesting question to raise. The other thing I wanted to bring up is the whole question of feminism in this film versus in Aliens. I think Josh brought up the idea that both the satire on capitalism and the idea of feminism are touched on lightly in this film and then more forcefully presented in Aliens. I would agree with the first, but not with the second. In Alien, it does take us a while to recognize that Ripley is the hero of the movie, and much of the power of the characterization that Weaver gives is that there is nothing on the face of it that marks her as the hero of the story. In other words, there is nothing particularly special about Ripley. She is simply just as capable as anyone else on board, and that ends up allowing her to survive. In this way, she reminded me a lot of the Charlize Theron character in Mad Max Fury Road. However, when we get to Aliens, there is a change. Ripley is just as capable and just as awesome as an alien, but much of what she does is for the sake of saving the kid, Newt. Therefore, much of her power as a character is inevitably wound up in a metaphorical motherhood, 
and thus she is re-feminized in a way that has always bothered me. Newt even calls her mommy at the end of the film, so that we are sure not to miss the point. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the get away from her, you bitch moment as much as anybody, but it seems that Cameron did not trust the potential of a powerful female character in her own right. And I think the film could have been more powerful in this regard, considering she is up against all the uber-macho military guys, the most macho of which is the woman in the group, which always reads as cartoonish for me. So for me, if anything, Alien seems to take a few steps back from the progress that Alien seemed to be going for. I still like Aliens a lot, but it will never be as strong for me as Alien is. So it's a really provocative question. Does the idea that Ripley is re-feminized, to use Christopher's word, as a mother actually make her less strong of a character or less of a feminist character? And I guess... First, I think about James Cameron, who, of course, directed Aliens and also gave us Linda Hamilton's Sarah Connor in Terminator, who is one of the baddest ass female characters in cinema and also decisively a mother, certainly in T2 Judgment Day. I don't know that it takes anything away from her. I'm a little bit hesitant, I suppose. I may be out of my realm here, but I'm a little hesitant to suggest that seeing that new layer of Ripley somehow takes something away from her as this symbol or any symbol of feminism. Yeah. And I know one thing we mentioned, I think, is that we thought about doing Alien and Aliens together back in 2016, which might have been a good idea for answering some of these questions because I had not seen it at that point, haven't revisited it since. So I'm hesitant to to speak directly to this. I would say in general, it's interesting to me. We've only lately gotten to a point where being a quote-unquote strong female character in an action film means you don't just have to be the toughest, most masculine mm-hmm. presence, you know, that that to be a strong female character, you've got to outmuscle the men. I, I, a turning point for me in this was Brave, the Pixar movie, where the heroine there, you know, yes, has some qualities as a warrior, but also, you know, in that film, something like knitting, which, you know, is associated more as a feminine quality, uh, is as crucial to the plot. So all of that is to say is back when Aliens came out, I don't, I think it would be kind of cool that seeing a woman somehow encapsulate both motherhood yes. And a badass, Mm -hmm. the badass we came to know in Alien, for me, seems like it would be a step forward. But again, I'd have to, you know, take a close look at at the film itself to really be sure. And we might just do that on a future episode, just not this one, because that is our show. In our show archives, you can find a lot more. We've got reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. So check that out at filmspotting.net. Including a lot more Sacred Cow conversations if you did enjoy that sort of thing. Again, filmspotting.net slash lists is the best place to find those. Over at the website, you can also vote in the current film spotting poll. You can save me from Rocket Man. If you haven't already, please check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show. It's hosted by critics Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. The Next Picture Show examines how classic films inspire and inform modern movies. In part one, the roundtable takes a deep dive into a classic film and its legacy. Then in part two, they compare and contrast it with a modern successor. This week, they dropped part two of their political affairs pairing. That features the new long shot with Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen. Next week... They're doing John Wick 3 and, look at this, Adam, we're back to 1979 with 
the Warriors. The next picture show drops every Tuesday night at midnight. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to pick up a Film Spotting t-shirt, we have those and other merch at filmspotting.net slash shop. If you want to connect with Adam and I on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, you can do it at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release this weekend, including here in Chicago, we have nonfiction, the latest from Olivier Asias, the director behind Personal Shopper, Clouds of Sils Maria, and more. It's set in the world of Parisian publishing, starring the great Juliette Binoche. Can't wait to see that. And director Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir, which is getting all kinds of great buzz. We look forward to catching up with that. In wide release, we've got Disney's Aladdin, and we have Brightburn. The tagline, evil has found its superhero, the plot. What if a child from another world crash landed on Earth? But instead of becoming a hero to mankind, he proved to be something far more sinister. I don't know if it could be more sinister than Will Smith as a blue genie. But Josh, if we put a gun to your head, yeah, Aladdin or Brightburn? This is a gun to the head situation. If I see them both, do I not have to see Rocket Man? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I think I would go with Brightburn in this scenario. You'd rather see Brightburn. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, to really answer the question, I'll go with you. Of course, also out, mentioned earlier in the show, Olivia Wilde's Booksmart, and we will have a top five that ties in with it. It might just be female friendships on screen. If you have a pick for that top five or have another suggestion, you want to throw out feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.